Chapter 5 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mrs. L. Sid. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 5. Rolling Meadows. On Monday afternoon of the following week, Cordelia, at the wheel of her spirited maroon roadster, a large black suitcase strapped on its afterdeck, her trunks had been sent in advance by express, was skimming easily over a Long Island road at a third her engine speed, but many miles over the speed permitted by the state law. She was palpitant with the suspense of the adventure whose portals she was now entering. She had taken part in many daring matters before this, but in none had the stakes been so important to her and to others. In none had the outcome seemed so unforeseeable, and in none had her personal situation been so strange a one. Behind her she had left business affairs settled upon much the basis Mr. Franklin had first outlined to her. There had been many interviews with him in his office from which one looked down, as from a watchtower, upon the far-flung city and its toiling, scheming, idling, suffering, loving millions. Mrs. Marlowe had been prevailed upon to come to this office and leave with Mr. Franklin her unfortunate securities. She had been greatly impressed by Mr. Franklin on her first visit, and her respect had grown a hundredfold when three days later he announced to her that she had been the victim of fraudulent practices, and that he had succeeded in getting a settlement out of her brokers and the companies in which she held stock. Under the terms of which settlement, she was regularly to receive $2,500 monthly. He had handed her a cashier's check for the amount of the first payment. She had been most grateful, but extreme tact had been required in handling her indignant demand for criminal action against those conscienceless brokers who had tried to ruin her and who so nearly had succeeded, and she had driven away, the saving check triumphantly clutched in her handbag, with never a suspicion that she had been an unconscious actor in a carefully prepared bit of private theatricals. Of course, Cordelia had promptly sent off the ordered note to Jackie Thorndyke, telling that her mother had been premature in her fears of financial reverses, and telling Jackie that their affairs were as sound as ever, and that therefore she, Cordelia, would not have to undertake any of those foolish schemes they had discussed. Jackie had replied with enthusiastic congratulations and had promised silence. It had hurt Cordelia a bit to tell this fib to a good old friend like Jackie. And, of course, there had been payments made upon those awful bills. There were flies buzzing about the sweet ointment of her secret rehabilitation of the secret failure of her family. Was she going to be found out? If so, what would happen to her? And then there was that sense that she was acting rather like a spy, coming to Rolling Meadows under such circumstances. But this last fly she brushed away with the mental gesture that she was coming to protect, not to betray though at intervals this fly returned to its buzzing. As she drew nearer her destination, her excitement grew more intense. She did not know Rolling Meadows. She did not know the stepsister or the other persons who might comprise the household. She knew only Gladys. She was about to enter a new world, a world that she now believed contained a mystery, possibly a menace, a mystery that she, always unsuspected, was to help discover and clear away. Presently the maroon roadster turned through the gateway of rolling meadows and swung over the low undulations, now lush with hay that would soon be ready for the mower, toward the house which sat upon a knoll 
that had the splendid exclusion bestowed by a quarter mile's removal from the highway. It had been the gently curving lines of the sweeping acres which had inspired the parents of Gladius to call the estate Rolling Meadows when, twenty years earlier, they had chosen this as the site of their country home and had ordered architects and landscape gardeners and builders to do their best. Since she was the first of Gladius's friends to enter Rolling Meadows, Cordelia looked with an explorer's interest at the house she approached. Her first vision, of course, could not take in details, but she was aware of a two-story red brick house, containing possibly two-score rooms, trimmed in white and with cool, wide porches upheld by white, fluted columns, the whole mounted upon the low pedestal of a brick-walled terrace. Two hundred yards from the house, the hay left off, and a lawn began whose nap was as perfect as that of a putting green. Cordelia had a consciousness of long rose arbors in flamboyant bloom, of a sunken garden at one side, of a thick pine wood as background to the entire picture, with Long Island sound on one side glistening in the distance. Then she halted her car at the steps from which Gladys had been eagerly waving to her. "'I'm so glad you were able to come after all,' Gladys cried, and after Cordelia had lightly sprung from the car, Gladys threw her arms around Cordelia and kissed her. That was only Cordelia's second kiss from her old-school friend, and it seemed uncomfortably strange. A man in formal clothes came rapidly and noiselessly down the broad steps of the terrace, crossed to the car, and began with quick, practiced hands to unstrap Cordelia's bag. Cordelia, obeying the instructions given her by Mr. Franklin, swiftly studied this newcomer, obviously Gladys's butler. He was young for a butler, perhaps twenty-eight or thirty, was above the medium height, rather lightly built except for an unusual width of shoulders, and had that clean-shaven, impersonal mask of a face which Cordelia instinctively associated with male house-servants of the higher order. If she had been asked at that moment to characterize him, she would have had to say that his outstanding characteristic was his perfect conformity to his class, his colorlessness, his lack of any individuality. And yet, despite this perfect usualness, Cordelia had an instant sense that his appearance belied the man's real quality. Bag in hand, the butler turned to Gladys. "'What time shall I serve dinner, Miss Norworth?' "'You can be ready in half an hour, Cordelia?' asked Gladys. Cordelia nodded. "'Dinner at eight, Mitchell.' Cordelia's eyes followed Mitchell as he moved easily away with her heavy bag, and she noted that Gladys's eyes were also fixed upon the impersonal butler." As they went up the steps of the terrace, Gladys again threw her arms around Cordelia in a clutching embrace. "'Oh, I'm so glad you've come,' she whispered. "'You'll you'll help so much.' "'How?' asked Cordelia, rather bewildered by Gladys's unaccustomed show of emotion. "'By, by just being here.' Gladys quickly recovered her self-control. "'You're so strong and sane, you know.' She started to lead Cordelia into the house. "'I'll show you your room.' Your trunks are already there. Wear anything you like. Dinner's going to be very informal tonight. Aren't you going to let me meet your stepsister now? Esther is helping with Francois. Francois? Who is he? Our child. Esther's in mine. The French war orphan we adopted? Oh, yes. In the excitement of getting here, I'd forgotten about your war orphan. He had a little indigestion this evening and didn't want to go to sleep. Esther offered to help his governess quiet him so I might be free to meet you. By this time they had crossed a big hall, mounted a wide stairway, and had come to a door which Gladys opened. 
These will be your rooms, Cordy. Annie here will take care of you. Gladys went out, and Cordelia gave her keys to the waiting lady's maid and examined her quarters. There were a large bedroom with bath, an enormous sitting room with eastern windows which looked over the green billows of the estate, and with northern windows from which she could look down from the hill-poised house over the stunted Long Island trees and see the smooth sound burnished by the low, coppery sun. There might be something wrong in this house, as Mr. Franklin had said, but certainly rolling meadows did not lack in comforts for the body and pleasures for the eye. At eight o'clock, Cordelia entered the dining room, and there met Gladys's stepsister, Esther Stevens. Cordelia tried to make swift appraisal of this new member of the household, as she had tried to appraise Mitchell. Esther Stevens was the direct antithesis of the colorfully handsome, imperious Gladys. She was twenty-eight or nine, pleasant of face and manner, though no radiant beauty, self-contained, self-controlled, with a quiet graciousness, and obviously in no awe of her rich and dominating sister. She gave off a sense of reserve power, and a sense that for all her quiet control, hers was a nature capable of deep emotion. Alert to record her impressions, Cordelia noted how instantly she had been struck by the wide difference between these two sisters, and she wondered how they got on together in private, and how they had been getting on the many years they had been together. She felt she was going to like this quiet Esther, if Esther would let her. There was no conversation at the dinner that Cordelia afterwards recalled in detail. She retained only her impressions. Gladys's attempts were all towards gossipy personalities concerning their friends. Esther said little, but what she said was pleasant and unobtrusively gracious. It increased Cordelia's liking. Cordelia's most distinct yet indistinct impression was of Mitchell. The butler alone served the dinner. Such was his ability to efface himself that he hardly seemed to exist. Yet there he was, serving noiselessly, seeming to anticipate every want before it became conscious in the minds of the three women, and in consequence requiring no word. In his non-existence, in his swift efficiency, he seemed to Cordelia the most perfect butlering mechanism she had ever met. A little incident happened at the end of the dinner that gave Cordelia further glimpse of the flawless versatility of Mitchell. He had served the ice and they were in the midst of it when a childish voice sounded from the main doorway. Mother Esther, can't I have some ice cream? Cordelia turned. There in pajamas and bare feet stood a handsome yellow-haired boy of four, sturdy and manly, blinking sleep-heavy but bright eyes at them. Esther and Gladys were out of their chairs at the same moment, but Gladys chanced to have sat the closer to him, and she seized him sharply by the shoulder. You naughty boy, Francois! Why aren't you asleep? Don't want you, Mother Gladys, declared the boy, trying to pull away from her. Want Mother Esther. Esther Stevens was now on her knees beside him, her arms about his small figure. I left you asleep with Jeanie watching, Francois, she said gently. How did you get down here? I woke up, and I wanted you to tell me another story, Mother Esther. Wasn't Jeanie there to tell you another story? The boy shook his head. Then he sighted Cordelia and pointed a tiny finger at her. Who's that, Mother Esther? You mustn't bother us, Francois, interrupted Gladys. You must go right back to bed. He'll go in just a minute, Gladys, said Esther. Come on, Francois, and meet your new friend. 
Gravely, she led him pattering across to Cordelia, and gravely went through the introduction. Gravely, the boy held out a hand to Cordelia. "'Are you going to be another one of my mothers?' he demanded. Cordelia felt a swift inward glow. "'I will if you will let me.' "'Can you tell good stories?' he cross-examined. "'Perhaps you'll try tomorrow, dear,' said Esther, starting to draw him away. "'Come upstairs and Mother Esther will tell Francois a story now.' But at that moment the non-existent Mitchell materialized on the opposite side of Francois holding his other hand. "'Pardon me, Miss Stevens,' he said, "'but won't you finish your dinner? I'm entirely through here. I'll take him up to the nursery.' And to Francois, "'Don't you want Mitchell to tell you a nice story? And let your mothers finish their dinner?' "'Yes, yes, Mitchell,' the boy cried eagerly. "'You tell the nicest stories of anybody.' "'Then say good-night, Master Francois.' "'Good-night, Mother Esther,' and he put an arm around her neck and kissed her. "'Good-night, Mother Gladys. You haven't kissed me good-night tonight, and you didn't kiss me last night.' He held up his face to Gladys, and the flushed Gladys gave him a quick kiss with, "'Now hurry off to bed with Mitchell.' The boy said good-night to Cordelia, then trotted off gravely with the butler. It seemed to the watchful Cordelia that Esther was not entirely pleased. The reason for it Cordelia could not guess, to have the child go away in Mitchell's charge. The butler puzzled Cordelia. The servant question is one of the established commonplaces of conversation. One may discuss it without seeming inquisitive, as one may discuss the weather or prohibition. So Cordelia felt she could ask questions about Mitchell without arousing suspicion of the curiosity behind the question. That seems a rather remarkable butler you have, Gladys. Yes, Mitchell is good. How long have you had him? About a year now. How did you happen upon him? Oh, he just turned up as servants do and applied for the place. He seems to be almost without personality, Cordelia chatted on. Nothing in his nature to attract one to him. Yet I noticed that Francois seemed very fond of him. Oh, that is just Francois's way. He takes to everyone. With her next sentence, Gladys changed the subject. Cordelia had a vague sense that Gladys had purposely changed the subject, that for some reason she preferred not to talk about her butler. There was little more said during the dinner. Left to her own thoughts, Cordelia could not help considering the members of this household into which she had been brought by invitation and the instructions of the cool-eyed Mr. Franklin. Gladys, Esther, Francois, Mitchell. She could not then have explained why, but more than about any of the others, she wondered about Mitchell. End of chapter 5